today as we uh, continue our journey through the Bible, uh, like I said last week, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at some of the, the stories of Jesus and how he uh, lived his life and the things he did while he was on earth. And today we're going to look at one of the most underrated miracles that Jesus ever performed. And it's, it's underrated because it reveals an essential element in our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus that too often we overlook. And that element is the fear of God, the fear of Jesus. Now, I know that when we talk about fearing Jesus, sometimes it sounds odd because Jesus, when we picture Jesus, he's this, this meek, you know, uh, most of the time we think long-haired, kind of uh, just gentle figure, and tip, Jesus did not have long hair. Uh, he, he also wasn't very white, so let's get that image out of our head. So he's not this, this you know, just benevolent kind of hippie Jesus walking around in Birkenstocks. Yes, he wore sandals, but yes, he had a beard, and yes, he was very tender. Yes, he was very kind, but he also displayed incredible power. Um, you know, there's a tenderness to Jesus that is amazing. We saw it last week when we looked at the story of the woman with the issue of blood. His tenderness to her when she was healed, he, he calls her a precious daughter. It's just it's very kind, very sweet, very gentle. Then, of course, he raises uh, Jairus' daughter and he calls her sweetheart as he raises her from the dead. So there is a tenderness to Jesus that is amazing. But this time, this week, we're going to look at a different side of Jesus. The, the side of Jesus that should cause us to have a little bit of fear of him. You know, without the fear of Jesus... We won't understand or find comfort in the tenderness of Jesus. And a lot of people, when we talk about the fear of God, they, they think about that we're talking about fearing God for destroying us, for not obeying him. We, we tend to think about the Old Testament God. And the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same God. They're not like, oh, well, the Old Testament God, when you know, he was a cranky old man, and then the New Testament God is this you know, fun-loving hippie Jesus, and so we got two different gods. It's the same God, the same character, but what's the difference? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The wrath of God for sin had been paid, so now the God that we see in the New Testament doesn't have to pass judgment on sin because sin has already been judged at the cross. But the Old Testament God, you know, people think about, you know, this, this angry kind of, of deity that if you, if you cross him, he's going to kill you. We, I mean, we read stories, you know, in, in the book of Exodus where God just opens up the earth and swallows people straight into hell because they're, they're making these false idols and, and he rains down fire and brimstone on, on cities. And just, we see this kind of, this kind of, you know, aggressiveness and people think, man, that's what the fear of God is that we are to be scared that God's going to punish us or God's going to, you know, send destruction to us because we sin or because we don't, abuse, don't obey him. People view God as an old oppressive figure that seems angry all the time, and that's not what it is at all. See, the fear of God 
that we are supposed to have is seen in Mark as a respect for God and awe of God because of his greatness. Whenever you come in the presence of greatness, you feel a sense of awe. You feel a sense of fear. Now, I've never met anyone who is truly, you know, famous, like, you know, a movie star or a sports star. I've never, well, I take that back. I did, did get an autograph from Daryl Strawberry back in the 80s, but that's when he was playing uh, for the Lynchburg Mets because he had a drug problem. And uh, so wasn't really in all of them at that time as a kid, but I've never met anybody really famous. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed by it now, but there have been men that I've met who I viewed as great because they were some, you know, nationally known preacher or pastor. And so they, they were kind of elevated and put up on a pedestal. And I realize now, don't ever do that. Don't ever put a man on a pedestal, especially a man of God on a pedestal, because I can guarantee you they're going to fall off. That's why I don't tell y'all I'm the great good man of God who should be respected. I tell y'all, look, I am a, a horrible believer. I, I have doubts. I, I, I sin. I mess up. And I'm just a sinner trying to follow Jesus. Why don't you come along with me? Because I don't want y'all to think, oh, he is so awesome. No, I ain't. Neither are you. So let's just clear that up. If y'all think, oh, he's a wonderful man. No, I'm not. Uh, but I love Jesus and I try to follow Jesus. And so, but anyway, I used to put, you know, these preachers. And I remember one time I won a contest and got to go to a baseball game with the greatest preacher in the world. And uh, another time I won a con same preacher. I got to go to New York with him and go to a conference with him. And when you, when I, I'm on the plane with this, this great, or I'm in the box with this great preacher, the, the owner's box, I'm just, I'm in, I'm in awe. I'm scared to even talk because if I say something, I may say something stupid and, and oh my goodness. And now I realize, yeah, that was dumb of me. I should have never done that. Uh, but we tend to, when we have people who we think of as great or we have a respect, we kind of get, you know, fearful when we're in their presence. We don't want to do anything or say anything that we shouldn't or, or act in a way that we shouldn't. And so when we encounter greatness, we, we feel a curious mixture of desire and terror. We don't want to run away, but we don't want to get too close either. We, we see that in, in Isaiah when Isaiah encounters God in all of his glory. Bible says that he, he has a vision where he sees God high and lifted up and sitting on the throne. He is so in awe of God. He is so scared of God that he can't even lift his eyes to look at him. He, he is afraid that if he even looks to God, he's going to be destroyed. But he doesn't run away. You know, to me, if you're scared of something, you try to get away from it, the way we think of fear. Now, I've gotten a lot better, but y'all know I don't like snakes. Snakes, to me, are an abomination. You know, Satan, of course, he's the great serpent. You understand that when, when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden as a snake, he had legs. 
So how do you know that? Because God told him, now you're going to be cursed to crawl on your belly. I'm taking your legs away. So snakes are, are the devil. I hate them. I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. I've gotten better. I can be around a black snake and just kind of, you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. A garter snake, you, you, but if it's a poisonous snake, I'm going to either kill it from a distance or run away really, really fast. I just, I don't like snakes. Now, if you come to me with one, I'm not going to freak out, but that hasn't always been the case. When I was, uh, right after I got married, I was working in construction and I was at this construction site way past Appomattox. We were building a school and this guy found a garter snake, very small little garter snake. And I'm sitting there working on a ladder. He comes, hey, Sean, look what I found. And it shows me this snake. I jump off the ladder and run away from this guy who's holding the garter snake. He thinks it's hilarious, so he starts chasing me. Well, I, they had put the window frames in and hadn't put the glass in. So I'm jumping out of a window and I hit my head and knock myself out cold because of a garter snake. Now, I'm not going to run from a garter snake now. Say, why? Because I'm so old, it'll hurt to run more than it will hurt to deal with a snake. So I don't want to do that. Uh, but, I don't, but to me, when you're that terrified or that fearful, which is what Isaiah says he is of something, you want to get away from it. But that's not the true fear. He was, he was scared of God's power. He was in awe of God's power, of God's glory, of God's holiness. So he, he couldn't even lift his eyes because he thought, if I lift my eyes, God's going to destroy me, but I don't want to leave his presence. I still want to be around him. Have you ever, you know, he was so in awe that he couldn't look at God but he couldn't bring himself to run from God either. Have, have you ever really considered how big God actually is? Astronomers tell us that on a clear night in a dark place, if you go somewhere out, out west like Montana or the Nevada desert where there's, you know, far away from Vegas, but, you know, the Nevada desert or, or out in, you know, this, these, these remote places where there's not a lot of lights and you get a clear night, they say that you can see over 9,000 stars with the naked eye. Has anyone seen a super clear night where you just see thousands and thousands of stars? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's breathtaking. It's beautiful, but there are over 3,000 billion trillion stars. 3,000, say what is that? That is three with 24 zeros behind it. We can't even comprehend that number. 3,000 billion trillion stars. And God knows every single one of them by name. Each of those 3,000 billion trillion stars, they put out the same amount of energy as 500,000 megaton bombs every second. And God created them with a word. That's how big God is. And how are we, how are we supposed to respond when we come into the presence of this magnificent, all-powerful, holy, righteous God. Look how the disciples responded. Look in Matthew, Mark chapter number 4. Start reading in verse number 35. 
Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Bible says, In the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over to the other side. I want to set the scene here about what's going on. Jesus has just finished preaching. He is, he is on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He is on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. He has been teaching all day and people come to him and the crowd is so big that he, he goes onto a ship and has them push it out a little bit ashore and he teaches from the, the, from the boat and he, he's had a long day of, of preaching and teaching and healing and he, he says after the day is done, he goes, okay guys, let's, let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That is to Gentile territory. He's a Jew in Jewish territory, wanting to go to Gentile territory. So Jesus, he was headed into the Gentile territory and he could have gone by land. They could have gone back to shore, got down of the boat, walked around the Sea of Galilee. It's not that long of a walk. So he, he could have gone by a land route, but he decides to take them by sea. And that's, that's important to the story. Look at verse number 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. Now, it's in, the, the, the reason they're mentioning other little ships is because they want us to know that this isn't a, a parable. This isn't a made up, this is something with, with eyewitness accounts besides the apostles. There are other ships who are in the Sea of Galilee at this time. There are other, they're fishermen, there are other followers of Jesus who want to go across the sea with him. So there are other people besides the apostles in the boat who are witnesses to what is about to happen. Verse 37, and there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish. Now, this storm that comes up is an incredibly powerful storm. It is so big that it scares the apostles, most of whom are experienced fishermen. They've been on the Sea of Galilee. They've been in storms before, but this one has them scared for their lives. Now, the Sea of Galilee, even today, it is prone to tremendous storms. The, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and the mountains that surround it are 9,200 feet above sea level. So there's a mixture from the cold of the mountains and the warm air over the sea that when they meet, they can develop these incredible storms, these, these destructive storms. I was reading about some of the storms here and one preacher said that he, he visited this area and they went to a restaurant on the Sea of Galilee and there was a sign in, in the restaurant parking lot because all the restaurants were on stilts saying, if you park here and a storm arises, you have 10 minutes to get your car to higher ground or it's going to flood. Like if you don't get your car out of here in 10 minutes, it's going to be in the sea and you can't, ain't nothing we can do about it. And so the, the, the storms, they're very powerful, they're very destructive, and they come up very suddenly. And this is one of those really 
big storms. The Bible says the waves are so big that it's filling up the boat that the apostles are in. They think they're going to die. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. Look, I can sleep through a lot. I'm a, I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. I have to sleep with a, uh, a noise machine on. Anyone else sleep with noise machines on? Like just white noises going, that's me. I got to have it. If, if I, the only thing that wakes me up is when my noise machine goes off. If my noise machine turns off, it wakes me up because I think, why is it so quiet? Something's wrong here. So, you know, people want to break in my house. I'm never going to hear them come in. The dog is, though, and the dog's going to eat them, and that'll wake me up. But so I'm a very heavy sleeper. I can sleep while riding, not while driving, while riding in a car. I can sleep on a plane. I don't know if I could sleep through this storm. But Jesus is. I mean, you got to think, the, the waves are crashing on the boat, and he's in the boat, so he's bound to be getting wet. He's bound to be tossed around, but he's, he's asleep. In the boat, and the disciples, they, at, they wake him up and they, they ask him a dumb question. Don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care that this ship is going to sink and we're all going to drown? That includes you. Look at verse number 39. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Now, the word rebuke here, it is something you do to someone who is below you in authority. It is like a parent rebuking a child. An employer rebuking an employee. Children don't rebuke parents. Now, I know it's 2021 in America and a lot of kids do rebuke their parents. That's another sermon. Y'all shouldn't allow that stuff. But children especially in this time, didn't rebuke parents. So the people who did the rebuking are always higher in authority than the person who was being rebuked. Who is Jesus rebuking? He's not rebuking the disciples. See, he will in a second. He's rebuking the weather. He's rebuking a force of nature. And it listens to him. Jesus stand up, stands up, and he rebukes the weather like it's a disobedient child. In the Greek, what he says, when he says, be still, it is a Greek verb of continuing action. Jesus is getting up, he's looking at the weather, and he's saying, be quiet and stay quiet. You ever, as parents, you ever said that to your kids? So. Do they always listen? No. I don't know how many times I've y'all need to stop, stop talking, stop. And especially with, when Connor and Lexi start getting into it and start fighting, I will, and, and they, they fight over the stupidest stuff. Connor wants the mustard and Lexi has it. It's just stupid stuff. And they'll start fighting and bickering. And I'll say, stop, stop talking, stop talking, be quiet. And I'll tell both of them. And they, they both have to get in the last word. And just, oh, and starts even to walking away. I'm like, stop talking or I'm going to kill you. They frustrate me. Jesus gets up to the weather and says, be quiet and stay quiet. And it listens. Better than my kids. To Jesus, 
rebuking it. So this is, this is an incredible miracle of Jesus. And the storm that the disciples are so scared of, the storm that the disciples are sure is going to kill them, stops immediately. But the Bible says it was a great calm. What that means is not only did the wind stop, the waves stopped immediately and the Sea of Galilee became like a sheet of glass. Now, if you have ever been around water, like big bodies of water, and the wind is going and the waves are... When the, the wind can stop pretty sudden, but the waves keep going. It's going to take a while for it to calm down. Not here. Jesus gets up and says, be quiet and stay quiet. The wind stops immediately and the water becomes like glass. It is perfectly calm. Immediately, everything stops. And look at verse number 40. So he's, re he's rebuked the wind. Verse 40, and he said unto them, now he's talking to the disciples, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Doesn't say, why, don't you have, why do you have so little faith? He says, why do you have no faith? After everything you've seen me do. Remember, just a few, just a few hours ago, he raised a little girl from the dead. She was dead. Everyone knew she was dead. Jesus walks in and tells her, hey, sweetheart, get up. And she gets up like nothing happened. And so he is defeating death. He is healing a woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years just by her touching the hem of his garment. He's, he's defeating all these things. He's like, you've seen me do this. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me heal the sick. Why are you so scared and have no faith in what I'm going to do? Look at verse number 41. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obeyed him? The, the phrase feared exceedingly means they were fear filled with fear because of what they had just seen. When they were in the storm, they were, they were afraid. They were sure that they were going to die. They felt fear, just plain fear for their lives. After Jesus rescues them, they are filled with fear. They have great fear. The rescue scared them more than the storm did. Seeing Jesus' power over the storm was more terrifying to them than thinking they were going to die in the storm. They're so scared, they, they ask. They're not asking Jesus. It's like they're talking between each other. You know, it's like it, when, when you are a kid and you're, you're, you obviously know that you've gotten, you know, your parents upset and you want to talk. You don't want to talk to them. You kind of keep it whisper and that just irritates me even more but you know I've just irritated dad and if I talk to dad or if I you know try to keep this going dad's gonna snap and, and hurt me and so I would really and I know y'all wouldn't either but anyway kids think that like oh we gotta we're, so they kind of whisper amongst each other so the parents don't hear that's what the disciples are doing they're like who is this guy that the the wind obeys him instantly that the sea 
obeys him immediately. Who is this guy that the weather listens to him? See, Jews believed, and they believed correctly, that no one could control the weather except God. Even Elijah, when he's, you know, when he, he say he, it doesn't rain for seven, for seven years and he tells Ahab, he goes, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Elijah's not the one who's keeping the rain at bay. He prays to God and says, God, please do this. And God does it. Then when he wants it to rain, he goes back to the mountain and says, God, please send the rain. And then God sends the rain. Elisha doesn't have the power to control the weather. God does. Elisha's just asking him to do it. So no one has the power to control the weather. Other prophets could heal. Other prophets could even raise people from the dead. Elisha raised people from the dead. But only God could control the weather. In fact, in Jewish literature at the time, the, the books that the rabbis, the robotic, not robotic, rabbatic uh, literature, this was, was literature that the rabbis would read that was extra biblical, but their literature said that if anyone ever claimed to control the weather, they were a heretic and should be stoned immediately. No one could claim to control the weather. And Jesus, he never claimed to have power over the weather. He just showed he did. He just showed he had the power over it. He didn't pray to God and say, God, please make this storm stop. He did it through his own power. He just got up and told the storm, stop it, be quiet, and stay quiet. So the answer to their question, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him, is God. It has to be God. Because only God can control the weather. Now this is one of three stories that Mark tells in a row about the amazing things that obey Jesus. Of course, there's the story of Jesus healing disease and raising the dead that we looked at last week. So Jesus, the death and disease obey Jesus. He tells a dead girl to get up and she gets up. Disease, it leaves the body of a woman just by touching the fabric of Jesus because Jesus has authority over disease. Here, he's showing us he has authority and power over the weather. Then, in the next story that, that Mark tells us, he has control and authority over demons. Comes to a demon-possessed man and commands the demons to leave him. And they do. Now they ask him to go into pigs, and he lets them go into pigs, and he killed himself. But they, he had, they had to get permission from Jesus to even go into the pigs. Because death is controlled by Jesus. Disease is controlled by Jesus. Demons are controlled by Jesus. And the weather obeys Jesus. So here's Mark's point. If death and disease and demons and the weather, because I couldn't think of a D word that means weather, but if all these things obey Jesus... Why wouldn't we obey him? Why wouldn't we 
Listen to him. So here's three things that we learn from this story. Number one, we learn, first of all, there is a good fear. There is good fear. You know, a lot of, especially in our culture, people don't want to admit they're scared. You know, fear is a bad thing. Fear is, fear is weakness. Fear is shameful. But fear can be good. As I said earlier, there's a peop, there are people that think a concept of a God that you should fear is outdated and wrong. That's just, how can you understand anything about the power of Jesus and not feel fear? Every time in Scripture, when someone comes, gets a, even a glimpse of the power and the majesty of God, they are overcome with fear. In Revelation chapter 1, John, the Apostle John, he gets a glimpse of Jesus the first time after his resurrection, after he ascended to heaven. Now, John has spent three years with Jesus on earth. John is called the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, it's written in the book of John, which I think, you know, people think, man, that's kind of arrogant of John to go and, hey, Jesus loved me the most. But the Holy Spirit told John to write down, hey, you are the apostle Jesus loved the most. John is the apostle that at the Last Supper, he lays his head on Jesus's chest. He's the one that Jesus says, hey, John, take care of my mom. He's with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's invited with Jesus to pray in the garden. He's with Jesus when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. So John, while on earth with Jesus, is probably the closest person to Jesus ever. He is considered Jesus' best friend. He was there in the storm. And now, in Revelation, he's seen the risen Savior he spent time with Jesus after he resurrected. He was there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended into heaven, and he hasn't seen him since. And now, in Revelation, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled. He is invited into the presence of his Savior, the one who he's spent three years walking with, the one he gave his life to serve, the one who he, he laid his head on his chest at the Last Supper. He, he, was the, he was the closest man to Jesus on earth. He finally sees his Savior again. And what does he do? Does he rejoice and run to hug Jesus? No, the Bible says in Revelation 1.17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It's not a figure of speech. He's not saying, I fake dead or I play dead or I bow down. When he saw Jesus in all of his glory, he thought, this is too much, I'm gonna die. There's no way I can experience the full presence and full glory of God and survive. We have lost the concept of that in our churches today. Today in our churches, Jesus is our friend. Jesus is the, the shepherd we snuggle up to 
and he protects us and he, he takes care of us and he gives us good things to drink and man, he just, he snuggles up with lost sheep. We sing songs about wanting to be in his presence. We pray and say, God, please show yourself to us. But here's the thing. If God actually showed up in all of his glory today, we would think we would die because of his majesty and his power. See, the reason so many people are so casual and their obedience to God is because they have no fear of God. They don't fear that God's going to punish them or correct them or convict them. They think, man, God's just, he's, he's a loving God. And yeah, God is a loving God. Yes, Jesus is our friend. Yes, you are adopted into the family of God and God is your heavenly father and he loves you and he accepts you and he cares for you and he's there for you, but he's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just and he also says, if you love me, you will obey me completely. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, follow the commandments you think are easy for you. If you love me, try to be good most of the time. He says, no, I love you. And if you love me, you'll obey me. Because you fear me. Because you have respect for me. See, he rebukes the weather and it obeyed him. He commanded death and disease and demons to leave and they obeyed him. So who are we not to obey Jesus. And too many of us, we treat the commands of Jesus like they're suggestions. I know what the Bible says about this situation, but I'm, I'm not ready to do that. I know what the Bible says about giving, you know, part of my 10% of my income to the, to the church. I, I know what the Bible says, but I, I don't, I'm not ready to give, make that step yet. I know what the Bible says about living a holy life and watching what I put before my eyes and, and not looking at pornography and not lusting and not watching things that cause. I know what the Bible says, but man, I love this show. I love this website. I, I want to do what I want to do. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do what I want to do because, hey, I'm saved. I'm saved by grace. When he died on the cross, he died for all my sins, past, present, and future. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. And yeah, you are. Yeah, Jesus did die for all your sins on the cross, past, present, and future. Yes, you are saved by grace. But we still serve a holy, righteous God that says, obey my commandments. Is he going to strike you down with life? And here's the problem. We'll sin and lightning doesn't come. So we think, hey, I guess God really doesn't care. We'll sin again, and the earth didn't open up and swallow us straight to hell. I guess God does, really doesn't care. And so we'll sin, and we'll sin, and we'll sin, and think, man, I guess we can just do whatever we want to do. But here's the thing. The Bible promises you will reap what you sow. If you reap the flesh, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. So will God condemn you to hell? Can you lose your salvation? No. But you can't lose your fellowship with God. And as a believer, the worst thing we can lose is our fellowship with God. You know who the worst people on this planet are? I'm talking the meanest, 
the, the most wicked, the most hateful people, they're not the unsaved. They're believers who have gotten so far away from God, they think they can do whatever they want to do and there's no problem, there's no judgment for it. And there will be. God will send punishment. You know, because I say it a lot, you know, God's not going to judge you for your sin. God has judged you for your sin. If you're saved today, your sin was judged on the cross. He poured out his wrath for it. Jesus absorbed that wrath. You will never be judged for your sin, but you will be punished by your father for your sin. You're not going to get away with it. You may not die immediately. God may not strike you with lightning right away. But God does punish sin unless we confess it and forsake it and understand we serve a holy, righteous God that we should fear and obey. As followers of Jesus, it is good for us to have fear of him. Fear him enough to obey him. Here's the second thing we want to look at. Fear doesn't eliminate love. I want to Kind of hurry up because last week I got you out a little bit after 12 and it's almost 12 now. I blame John. He wasn't here. We got out by 12. He's here. We're late. So it's John's fault, right? All right. Uh, so fear doesn't eliminate love. You know, fear and love, we think, don't go good together. You know, again, I'm afraid of snakes. There's, there is nothing I love about snakes. They're creepy. I had a, I'm part of an, a preacher's uh, Facebook group. It's called the Idea Network. And somebody asked a question because I'm assuming this happened in his church. He says, would you allow someone to come to church and bring their boa constrictor with them again? Again? You let him the first time? Like someone tries to come in here with a boa constrictor. One of us is leaving. Either him or me. And if it's me, I'm burning the church down on my way out. I mean, to me, snakes are not cute. There's nothing cute. And I'll see a picture. Oh, look at this cute snake. No, it's not a cute snake. Did y'all hear about what happened in Raleigh this week? Someone let out a cobra. They lost a cobra. How do you lose a cobra? Why do you have a cobra? But why do you even lose? To me, there's nothing good about snakes. Now, I appreciate what what they do for our world. I appreciate black snakes eating you know, poisonous snakes and rats and things like that, but I don't love them. That isn't the kind of fear the Bible is talking about here. Yes, the apostles were afraid of Jesus. They had fear, but it was out of love. They feared the storm. They feared the fact that Jesus spoke to the storm and it listened, but they loved that he saved them from the storm. In C.S. Lewis's Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children there, Lucy, Susan, and I can't remember the other one, uh, they they hear about Aslan. Aslan, of course, represents God and Jesus in these books. And so they hear about Aslan. And Lewis says that when they hear about him, they have a, a, a sense of mystery and loveliness. And Susan says, so wait, who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver if you've never read it, read it. You've probably watched it, but read it too. It's a great book. Mr. Beaver says he's the king. He is the great lion who is the creator of Narnia and its rightful ruler. And Susan says, a lion? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
He's a lion, but I tell you, he's good. He's the king. That's how God is. God isn't safe because he's all-powerful, he is holy, he is righteous, and he punishes sin. But he's good. And because he is good, we love him, even though we have a healthy fear of him and his power and his glory. And that's the type of fear the apostles were having in the storm. They fear Jesus, but they love him because he's good and he saves them. And when we truly experience the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, it should intensify our fear and our love for him. Psalms 130 says this, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. David says, You forgive us, so we should fear you, even though we love you. We are forgiven so we can fear. But isn't, isn't the point of forgiveness to take away our fear? If we're forgiven, what are we afraid of? When we see what Jesus went through to save us, the beatings, the pain, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the rejection of God the Father while he's on the cross, it makes us see the holiness and the perfection of the God that we sinned against. The bloody cross was a terrible price for our sin. It was the price of disobedience to God and Jesus paid it on our behalf. But through that sacrifice, I see I am safe within God's love and that moves me to worship him. See, true worship is a mixture of all and intimacy, all at the size and the power of God. Intimacy and in realizing that he has paid our full debt and he has adopted us into his family. Without one, without the other, is just religion. Some people have fear of God and no intimacy with God. So they work to try to earn their, their place with God. Others have intimacy with God without all. They are so lazy and casual in their obedience to God that they compromise every area of their life. True worship is awe or fear mixed with intimacy or love. Here's the third thing it shows us. Fear of God means we fear nothing else. When you realize how powerful Jesus is and that he is in the boat with you, you don't have to be afraid of anything else ever again. In this story, Jesus not only rebukes the apostles, he not only rebukes the winds and the waves, he rebukes the disciples for being scared in the first place. He tells the, the wind and waves, stay quiet, be quiet and stay quiet. Then he looks at the disciples and say, why are you scared? Why do you have no faith? If he is rebuking them, it's because that they did something wrong. But their fear seems legitimate. They think they're going to die. The boat's filling up. Jesus' point is, yes, the storm is scary. 
but I'm in the boat with you. And if I'm in the boat with you, you don't have to be afraid of anything. I've got you. If I'm with you, you don't have to be afraid of anything ever. You know, all of us have some sort of a irrational fear. You know, April, she's, she's scared of mice. I've told you all that. She thinks they're creepy. Uh, she's even scared of hamsters because they look like mice. She, I'm lucky she allows me to feed the chipmunks because they're too mice-like. She's scared of mice. But her irrational fear, and I'm not going to say that's rational because a lot of people are scared of mice, she's scared of frogs. Like frogs freak her out because she doesn't know what they're going to do. She's like, they just, they're sudden, they jump wherever they want to go, and I can't, I can't predict where, so she's scared of these things. It's because of a control issue she has, we're not going to get into that, but anyway, she's scared of frogs, and it makes no sense to me. I, I understand some people, but I understand I'm not scared of mice. I think, like, especially like Phil, I think mice are cute, but she's scared of mice. I, I get that a lot of people are scared of mice, especially rats, they carry disease, they're gross, but I get it, but frogs, who, who is scared of frogs? Especially, I mean, it's not like we're living in South, Af South America where a frog can kill you if you lick it. I don't know why you would lick a frog anyway. But it's, you know, we're, we're talking mostly toads up here, and she's, she's scared to death of them. When we have Jesus, all of our fears are irrational. Our fear of death, it's irrational when we have Jesus. When Jesus was, was with us in the boat... We have everything we need and have nothing to fear. If Jesus was going to the other side, he was going to make it to the other side and they were going to go with him. So to Jesus, since he's in the boat, the fear of this incredible storm that everyone else should be afraid of because it's sinking ships. and the, He's like, you know, I understand that you should be afraid of this storm, but I'm with you. And if I'm with you, you have nothing to fear. They were scared because they didn't understand the power of Jesus, and so they feared the storm. But if they had feared the power of Jesus, they wouldn't have been scared of anything else. Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is on your side, what do you have to be scared of? That means no matter what we're facing, we have nothing to worry about because God is on our side fighting for us. That means when we worry and when we're scared in a situation, it's because we've either forgotten the power of Jesus or we doubt his love and commitment to us. We see the storm and we think Jesus is sleeping because he doesn't care. We see the size of the waves. We see the size of our boat. We see that our boat is filling up and we are drowning in our, in our bills or in our marriage or in the problem with our kids and our work problems. We're drowning in our health and we think, God, why are you asleep and why don't you care? The story tells us when we, when we feel that way, it's okay to be scared. The disciples were scared and they're leaders of the church. But you can't listen to your feelings. Your feelings will tell you God doesn't care. Your feelings are false. Your feelings will mislead you. We have to listen to the truth of the word of God. The truth is that God loves you 
and God is always there for you. When we feel that away, the story also says it's, it's okay to wake up Jesus. You know, Jesus wasn't irritated they woke him up. I would have been. I'm like, I was, I was just hitting dreamland. And here you guys, he doesn't get irritated. Why did you wake me up? He says, why were you scared? It's okay when you're in a storm to wake up Jesus. He's always awake. He's always there. But it's okay to run to him and say, God, I'm scared. But I trust you. I trust that you're going to get me through this. There are some things that God only teaches you in the storm. In the storm, we learn to trust him. In the storm, we learn of his power. See, everybody wants to see the miracles of God, but nobody wants to be in a position to need a miracle from God. We were all in a terrible storm facing destruction from God's wrath for our sin. And Jesus took all of it and saved us from God's wrath. When he came to earth, lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again three days later, he saved us from the storm of death and hell and the wrath of God for our sin. He did for us what we could never do. Through his power, he defeated death, hell, the grave for us. And so we don't have to fear them anymore. If God is with you, you have nothing to fear. You know, fear, it's an interesting thing. You know, we, we tend to think that fear is only for weak people. We are to fear Jesus because of his power. When we see his power and his love, we are to love him because of that fear. And if we are with him and if he's with us in the boat, we have nothing else to fear. So here's the question this morning. What do you fear this morning? Do you fear Jesus? Because we should. Or are you scared about a situation you're in? If you fear Jesus, 